0: English 256. Rosamond Gifford Zoo in Syracuse. I made a pitch for it before we started recording. Check it out. Good penguin exhibit. New leopard exhibit. Amur leopards. One of the most endangered species of leopard in the world. Great new exhibit. Check it out. Uh, announcement. So next week's reading, right, is this... um autobiography. First autobiography published by a Native American person. It's published initially in, I think, 1829. And so we're reading that next week. Uh, It's kind of difficult at the level of language, right? Because it's written in the 1800s. It's kind of older. So it's kind of difficult at the level of language. So you're going to have to give yourself a little more time with it. If that book has not come through for you, because I know it's the book that uh, wasn't at the bookstore for whatever reason, email me. And I can shoot you a copy of the reading for Monday. Um, oh, in addition to that, right, because it's kind of difficult, because this is a weird read, it's a little bit older, it's like the exact opposite of what we read for today, which was like quite accessible. Um, the, because it's kind of difficult and not as easily accessible, on the post, like the forum link for Monday and for Wednesday and for Friday, I'm actually just throwing out a couple of questions, right? that um, the people who do posts, so not you guys on Monday, but the people who do posts on Monday, mm-hmm. hey Cameron, the people who do posts on Monday uh, might be interested in like responding to the questions that I ask. And then those questions will also be something that motivates the discussion on Monday as well. So if you listen in, and we talk about that. But that'll be the case on, on Friday as well. Any questions about that? So yeah, if you need a copy, shoot me an email. Um, you been to the zoo up in Syracuse? No? Ah, Friday. All right, uh, Cherokee Fables. So this week is all about traditional stories. We've done origin stories. We've done confederation stories. Origin stories giving us that spiritual or religious kind of component. Confederation stories providing us with that kind of political or national component. And these ones kind of teaching tools, right? The first thing we read today right at the beginning is like these stories are intended to teach. God, there's nobody in this building, and yet it's so loud. These stories are intended to teach, right? They're social tools, right? Um, what do fables do? Like, just not, ju- not just these ones, right? A bunch of you on the post actually had really good thoughts about, like, how to distill or summarize the things that come out of these fables. But what do fables do in general? What are they supposed to do? What do they accomplish? Teach
1: moral behavior.
0: Yeah, they teach a moral behavior, okay? They provide you with a lesson. That's one thing. What about especially in these ones, but also something like Aesop's fables, which you might kind of have a a familiarity with, a passing familiarity with. They teach a moral lesson. They also do oftentimes one other thing as well, which is kind of hinted at in some of the titles of these, like how the rabbit got its ears or its legs. So in that case, what what do these fables often do? Yeah, they often like, explain a natural phenomenon. Right? So it's often the case that these types of fables, right, which we might equate with children's stories, although like, uh, a couple people in the forum said, like, you know, there's kind of more to them than that. Like, it's a children's story on one level, but it also like, embedded in it is something quite nuanced and, and interesting. So they do kind of two things. They teach a lesson, a moral, right, an ethical behavior. But they also often teach like, the explanation for a natural pho- phenomenon. Okay, so in this case, like in the stuff that we read, let's take just like the toad one about the eclipse. What was the kind of moral teaching that came out of that story? Where the people are walking over the toad, and the toad, or is it the frog? I don't know. He had smooth skin at the beginning, right? But he keeps getting walked over, over and over and over again, and as a result, he has kind of like splotchy, infected skin. He looks like a frog that we know now. So what's the, eth- the moral or ethic embedded in that story?
1: Yeah? I said like your actions always have consequences, like good or bad, and even if the action was intent- intentional or not.
0: Yeah, good. And this is a really important kind of like small little turn here. It's not just that your actions have consequences, but in this story it's also that your actions have consequences even if you don't perceive them as having consequences, right? And so the frog becomes mad that the people are stepping all over him and the frog goes and tries to eat the moon. Happens, totally. Sometimes when I get angry, I feel like eating the moon too. Eating everything, just eating everything in sight, including the moon. That would be great when you're angry. Um, so it actually explains, like, two natural phenomenon out of that moral, right? It explains why frogs look the way they do and also why eclipses happen, all right? So that's a good one, right? What about um, the, essentially, like, the tortoise and the hare one, but the wolf and the turtle? What's the, the wolf and the terrapin? They use the word terrapin, but it's a turtle. What's the moral behind that one?
1: Don't cry.
0: Yeah, don't be egotistical, don't like um, feel like you're better than other people, right? Like uh, back up your words with actions in a certain way as well. Is there a kind of natural phenomenon in that one that's being explained?
1: kind of stick to themselves.
0: Yeah, precisely. Like I actually don't know if biologically speaking, you might know this, biology major, right? But not animals, presumably, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Well, I mean, humans are animals, but not like non-human animals. Um, I don't know that it's actually the case that wolves stick to themselves. I think they hunt in packs, do they not? Or no, that's the idea of the lone wolf? I don't know. In any case, it's supposed to provide to you that sense of a natural phenomenon, like that explanation for a natural phenomenon. What about... um, What's the third one? Oh, yeah, the rabbit, right? What's the moral behind how the rabbit gets its long back, legs, and its ears. What's the moral behind that one? It only takes one person to, have to ruin something for everyone else. Yeah, good. There's actually some great owls at the Syracuse Zoo. <laughs> a barred owl and a, a striped one or something? A barn owl. A barred owl and a barn owl. In any case, yeah, so the owl is like face the other direction, but of course owls, I learned this at the zoo, they have more vertebrae. Than other animals which allows them to turn their head 180 degrees to see the other side right it's because they have more vertebrae so the owl does that and that screws everything up right the rabbit doesn't get the long forelegs and also all the other animals don't get their wishes right so the moral here is like one person can really mess it up for the entire community right but what's the natural phenomenon that's being taught through that one couple of different ones right of course it's the rabbit how the ears are and how the back legs are but what about what else Um, yeah how the owl or why the owl's eyes are always so big right so again a moral teaching and a natural phenomenon phenomenon what about the last one that we read the possum and the rabbit this is a weird one This is why I included it, because I think it's a really rather strange one, and it actually gives us something more complicated to talk about, which I want to get to by the end of class. But I just want to set this up right now. Is there a moral to that one? Not really. In fact, like, at the beginning of the story, the teller says, like, this isn't really a story that has a moral. It's more of a how or a why story. So what he's saying is, this is a story that doesn't have a moral or an ethic, but it does explain something. But what does it explain? What's the natural phenomenon that this story explains? Possums playing dead. Playing dead. Why possums like curl up into a ball and play dead when they're getting attacked. Okay. But then there's another phenomenon that's explained through that idea of playing dead. Right at the end of the story, there's another phenomenon. I don't know if we would call it natural, but there's another phenomenon that's explained. Does anybody remember what that is?
1: Possums dead, like
0: by the side of the road. Yeah, it's basically like... How roadkill happened, like why roadkill happens. That's very different, right, than like why an eclipse happens, or why a rabbit has long ears, or why an owl has big eyes. I wanna talk about the difference there, and actually why it's kind of important by the end of class, okay? Does that make sense? Right, we set this up, like there's a moral in all of these stories, there's an explanation of a natural phenomenon in all of these stories, but when we get to that fourth one, there's very precisely and explicitly no moral. And then the natural phenomenon is why we see possums dead on the side of the road. Huh, strange. It's because he's trying to find a wife. Okay, fair enough. But like why we find roadkill, that's an that's a explanation for a natural phenomenon of a very different character than the three prior. So keep that in mind. But before we do that, a couple of other things. One thing that came out of your post, which I thought was really interesting, is you were basically like, Cameron, you were saying, You know yeah uh so we see the frog eating the moon and that's what creates the eclipse or like we see that the bear in the um the rabbit story the bear becomes like aggressive and strong because the god grants its wish and cameron says well of course like we know evolutionarily speaking and through like western science that the reasons for that are different than the what the reasons the stories provide which i thought was such an interesting way of framing what these morals do, because are these morals really um, substituting themselves for scientific explanations? I guess is the question that I'm asking out of your post. You can answer it or somebody else. But the idea here is, are these fables actually trying to provide us with scientific explanations? And if not, why are they explaining natural phenomenon in this way? What does it do? Because presumably, Cameron, The Cherokee, 21st century Cherokee who tell each other these stories and tell their children these stories, they're not telling these stories to their children so that their children actually believe that an eclipse occurs because a frog is trying to eat the moon, right? No, they're 21st century people. Like, that's clearly not the case. Like, they know why eclipses occur. They understand the science. So why do you tell this story? Why do you provide that explanation for a natural phenomenon if it's not an actual scientific one. What do you think? If it doesn't substitute for science, what does it do? Think about the audience here. Like if these stories are for children, why might we give that explanation?
1: Like a reason as to why it happens that they can understand.
0: Yeah, there's an accessibility thing here, right? And so you tell a child a story like you want to have some reason for telling it if there's no reason for telling it, it's actually going to be a lot harder for them to access the moral because they're going to be uh, not as interested in the story. Right? That's why it's often the case that with these morals or fables, the title is actually How the X Got Its Y. Because if you're a child, right, that sucks you in. It's like, oh yeah, hell yeah, I want to learn about how the rabbit got a big floppy ears. Hell yeah, I want to learn that. And then what happens is subtly, sneakily, the moral is embedded in the story, right? And so out of Cameron's point, I just really want to emphasize that the idea here is not that like these stories provide an alternative scientific or factual justification or explanation for a natural phenomenon. That's not, that's not what they're even going for. The whole point is that they bring you to that idea, right? In order to almost entertain you and to trick you into learning the moral, okay? So if that's what fables do, right? They provide you with a moral explanation or a moral teaching, and they also purport to provide an explanation for a natural phenomenon, although not a scientific one. How do they accomplish that? Like literally at the level of how the stories are put together, how do they accomplish that? Are these like really confusing, highly complex stories, or are they simplistic? Um, are these stories that... Uh, cleave to realism or are they fantastical that kind of stuff how do th- how do the stories accomplish the two goals that we've just discussed like stylistically formally just talk through some of those styles yeah um,
1: well like with the Babbitt story it's very like imaginative and it brings in like Sort of a magic aspect
0: yeah. by the god like you know, so just out like, these people's their, these people, uh, the animals Poof. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so there's a fantastical element, like even setting aside like the idea that in all these stories animals talk, right? There's a fantastical element of like the god or the creator figure being able to like point at the animal and change something about it, right? So there's a fantastical element. These are definitely not realistic stories. That's one way in which the moral and the explanation of natural phenomenon comes through. What about the way in which they're written or told? What about the style? Difficult to read? No. How would you characterize it? I know this seems like a really simplistic question, but it's actually like description is the first move we have to make before we go to analysis, right? We actually have to like find the words to describe the thing. So if it's not complex, right the language, what would you say it is? It's like
1: informal, more like
0: a conversation than like you like telling a story. Yeah, great. Informal a conversation. It's something that going back to the beginning of the reading, we might anticipate happening like around a fire with a pot of beans. Yeah, we all just tell stories around pots of beans here, right? Like that's that's the kind of story that's being told to us. It's very <laughs> informal, it's very colloquial, we would say. Just like Two people talking as opposed to something that's very stilted, right? And kind of um, traditional or high bound, good. What else? Other stylistic features, just even at the level of like sentences and things. Short, choppy, not complex at all, right? That also approximates talking to one another, right? It's often the case that in these stories, what's being approximated is like oral discourse, right? the oral storytelling tradition is trying to be approximated on the page. And that's especially the case in a couple of the stories that we read. Not all of them, but for instance, like the uh, possum and rabbit story. It's almost written in terms of like how it's put on the page. In terms of how it's put on the page, and I'm just holding up one of the pages for those of you listening in. How it's put on the page, it doesn't look like a story. Like prose, it actually looks like what? Yeah, it looks like a poem. I thought it was a poem at first. Yeah, I mean, no, but you're totally right. Like, I think it's a poem at first. The reason why is that on the page it looks like a poem. Now, what do we know about poetry? Maybe nothing. You're like, I know nothing about poetry. (laughs) What do we know about poetry? That's just a kind of hypothetical question. One of the things that we might know about poetry, some of you fucking English 290 people should know this. What do we know about poetry? Like, what's the history of poetry? What's traditionally the origins of poetry? It's a spoken form, right? Right? It's meant to be recited. It's meant to be performed out loud. And so, of course, it makes sense that the story that's being spoken, right, in this informal, colloquial way, as if you're kind of like across a fire from somebody, it makes perfect sense that it would be put in this form, right? Why? What does the poetic form, the poetic structure show us that, like, just a big block of paragraph, a big block of text in a paragraph doesn't?
1: People don't read that. Or because
0: it's shorter and it looks easier? Potentially it's shorter, maybe more accessible. At the level of literally the structure, what does it give us? If we were going to be the person who read it out loud, like if we were going to read this off to another person, what does the poem structure provide to us that like a big block of text in a paragraph doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. It
1: allows you to, like, it kind of shows you how to read it with, like, the spaces between each,
0: like, paragraph. Yeah, precisely, right? It tells you when to break. It tells you when to take a pause. It tells you when to speed up, right? It gives you those markers in the spaces. We call it lineation in poetry in the way that the the text is written, right? Those markers are not really there in the same way if it's a big block of text. And so the way some of these stories are written, particularly these Sequoia guest stories, Right, the way some of these stories are written down actually approximates oral speech in a really, really, really precise way. Right? It's almost as if the person who is recording these stories and then basically transcribing them onto paper was trying to approximate the way that Sequoia was telling them. Right? With the pauses, with the breaks, with the kind of waiting for suspense or anticipation—all of those things built into the poetic form. Right? So that's another way that the fable accomplishes its goals, right? the two goals that we talked about, the moral and the natural phenomenon. Right? It does so not only through simplistic language, it also does, through, does so through simplistic forms, often forms that approximate something like poetry as opposed to something like prose. Does that make sense? What's the effect of reading something like this, then? Something that's simple like this like at the level of language or at the level of form. We're in a college classroom. right? Next week, we're reading an autobiography from a dude written in 1829. It's 20 pages, but it's actually going to take you a decent amount of time because the language is hard. Okay, What do you expect to read in a college classroom? Probably something closer to what we're reading on Monday. Although, you know, there's childhood ed majors here, so maybe actually this is like, the, the, uh, like a, really th- a thing that you actually really read, but if we have this kind of like stereotypical sense of the, pr- the um, appropriate content for a college classroom, like the autobiography from 1830 is gonna be the thing, not the fable, right? And so what does that kind of build into our heads about our preconceived notions of this type of work, of this text? Like it's simplicity the way that it's rendered on the page. It's
1: like only meant for kids, kind
0: of. Yeah, I think that's right. I think like, we have a kind of built-in preconception that these types of fables are intended solely or exclusively for children, right? And in some respect, they are, right? That's kind of the point. But what I want to suggest to you is that what the simplicity of the style and the form belies, right, what it hides, is actually a pretty complicated and nuanced idea. Oftentimes, right? There's actually more to it than what you just get through the simplicity, right? In fact, the simplicity kind of like plays tricks on you because when you read something so simple and so accessible, your first, um, like your first movement, like your first thought might be, okay, this is simplistic, this is accessible. Therefore, what comes out of it is also going to be quite simplistic and quite accessible, naturally. But I think a lot of these stories work on two levels, right? These stories work on the level of, like, they're children. They're for children. And they give that simplistic and accessible moral. And they give that explanation of a natural phenomenon. But we can also read them in a different way. We can read them, like, against the grain. We can read them not as simplistic and accessible, but as pretty complicated and pretty nuanced. And we might get into that a little bit more in a bit. But does that make sense? That we can kind of read these things on two levels, right? We can read them in line with their simplicity and accessibility, or we can read against that simplicity and accessibility, too. OK, so what have we kind of done here? Fables, what do they do? Right. They do kind of two things. Those are their goals. And then how do they accomplish them? We've talked about that a little bit, too. What about this, um, this last one, the rabbit and the possum? Right? It doesn't seem to accomplish either of the goals of what we usually understand fables to do very well at all. Right? Like we said, it offers no particular moral, and the phenomenon that it explains, it explains playing possum, but more generally speaking, like the thing that the story ends with is that it explains the presence of roadkill. So how is this story different than the other three? Just at that level. Can anybody rehearse that for me? How is this story different? What does it do differently than the other three? It doesn't provide a moral. And then in terms of the natural phenomenon, what what's different about it? Yeah?
1: It's a phenomenon caused
0: by healing. Yeah, OK. This is a, yeah, go ahead.
1: Like, cars, like, it's a
0: This is a really important point that I want to get to. It's the strangeness of this last story that kind of helps us get into what I want to suggest is the complexity of these tales a little bit more than the simplicity. This is a moral or a fable, right? Possum and rabbit trying to get wise. But in this story, there's like roads and cars. How is that like anomalous or different than our kind of conventional sense of what a fable is? It's
1: not like set in the past, it's more modern.
0: Yeah or even like Marissa when you say past like i take you not to mean like the fables are usually set in like shakespearean times or something when you say past i think what you correct me if i'm wrong but i think what you really intend is like some kind of mythic past right through what like talking animals right the fantastical so it's not as if we're talking about the, the fables usually happening in a historical past they're happening in a mythical past like a mystical past where we have talking animals and like god creators who are talking to those animals. Right? So what's strange about this last story, then? What's anomalous about this last story? Cars? Roads? Weird, right? This last story doesn't really align with the kind of stereotypical or expected or conventional notions that we have about fables. Because instead of being placed in this kind of mystical past, it takes that mystical past, those characteristics, those talking animals and stuff, and it brings them into like a weird contemporary moment. The possum who can talk is getting run over by a car. What's the effect of that, right? Fables are usually timeless. They're set in a mystical past. Why would that be the case? From the perspective of the, fact, perspective of the idea that these are supposed to teach you, or children, why would we set fables in a mystical past if they're intended to teach children really simple, clear, precise, moral lessons? Why would we set them in a mystical past where bunnies can talk? It's
1: so more interesting for
0: the kids. Yeah, potentially. Why is it more interesting? Just state that explicitly.
1: Um. Because like they think of talking animals as like something fun, something interesting, and all that. Whereas like, I mean, they'll probably look at a bunny and think it's cute. But if it's talking, it's like a lot more interesting to them than just a bunny sitting there.
0: Totally, it opens up their mind in a certain way. I mean, we began this class talking about my kids being fascinated by monkeys. If the monkeys started talking to them, well, actually, everybody would be fascinated by that. But like, they'd be particularly fascinated by that, right? So yeah, there's something about like entertainment or intrigue or interest. That can bring the audience in. What else? Why don't we set fables in contemporary times, generally speaking? Definitely to engage and interest the audience, the intended audience, right? But why don't we set like fables in 1900? Why are they in this kind of like mystical past? What's the point of the fable? Again, the point of the fable is to teach a moral lesson the moral lesson is supposed to be a universal one. That is to say, the moral lesson is supposed to be something that everyone agrees with and that everyone should accept. So yeah. So it
1: doesn't get outdated?
0: Yeah, kind of, right? So, um, yeah, say more about what you mean by that.
1: So, things are always changing. So, like, certain number of years ago, like, they would have never done school online, and now they are. Yeah. So if they're studying it at a time where, like, it would not ne- something would never happen during that time, that is, like, happening now, they can't really relate. But so, if it's, like, mythic or, like, imagination, then it can happen whatever,
0: wherever. Right, yeah, yeah, so you're getting to that precise point at the end there. What you're trying to kind of point us to, Kieran, is that, like, what the mystical, mythical past setting allows for is for the moral to be considered entirely universal, right? This is a edict, this is a behavior, this is a moral, an ethic that you should believe in and that you should uh, continue to practice in your life, no matter when you live or where, right? What you're saying is that like, if we were to set a fable in 1900, what that does is that necessarily we begin to say, like, hmm, well, maybe like, the teachings and the beliefs and the values of 1900 are not the same as they are now. And we would begin to question that. Basically, what we would be questioning is whether that moral, that teaching, or belief is actually universal. Right? And so by placing these fables in some mystical past where animals are talking and it's fantastical, you're kind of like erasing or obviating the need for that questionnaire, Right? It makes that teaching totally universal. It makes that teaching totally universal. So when the car shows up in the rabbit and possum story, what happens then, according to this logic of what we've been talking through? When the car shows up, it blasts this kind of sense of the moral or the fable as universal, right? Because now we're talking about, like, a 20th century technology. What's the effect of that on the story? Just speculate. Like, if you're a child reading this or somebody's telling it to you as a child and you're talking about talking rabbits and talking possums who are getting on later in life and they feel like they need to settle down and find a wife because they can't get out of bed anymore and they... It really, makes them really tired to make their dinner. We could talk about the gender politics of this story some other time, <laughs> right? Like, uh, but uh, what's the effect of having a car in this story? car shows up, starts knocking possums across the road. Think about if you're a child and you're being told this story What does it do to the moral? What does it do to the teacher?
1: I mean I'd probably be sad because there's dead <laughs> animals in it, but I also like wouldn't really relate to it because I'm not getting married, cooking dinner,
0: driving, Just anything fair. like that. Yeah, there's a bunch of like c- concerns in the story that wouldn't kind of link up with childhood. But the thing that's kind of not timeless is the car. Right? So what you're suggesting is that it's hard to relate to that technology, to that idea. Okay, so it takes us out of the mode of thinking about this story as mystical and thinking about it as universal, right? It pushes us out of that kind of comfortable setting we're in where we believe this teaching to be um, outside of time. The teaching exists outside of time. When there's a car here, it seems to exist within time in a weird way, almost as if like our world of cars and roads and dead animals is colliding With the world of mystical talking beasts. That's really different than the kind of expectation we have around the genre or type of literature that we call the fable. Really different, right? So, why? What does this show us about native stories, about how? Native people educate and teach their children about, like, educational systems, about learning environments or learning styles? What does this show us? That, like, this is understood as a fable just as much as the one about the wolf and the tarot? What does it suggest to us about how Native people teach and the ideas and beliefs and morals that they value? We've talked a lot in this class, all the way back to King, about this idea that we have around the stereotypical um, expected Indian, right? And one aspect of that stereotypical expected Indian that we have is that Native people are timeless, right? That they exist out of time. They can't change, right? They are stuck in a traditional past. They're not people of the present, right? What does this story reveal to us then? If we're thinking about that expectation, what does this fable with the car reveal to us? Yeah. Like a modern day feel. Yeah, say more. It is modern, right? It's a modern fable. It's a fable that has a car, and what it's explaining to us is the presence of roadkill. So explain why modernity matters here. Why does having a modern feel matter? Um, I don't know. Kind of like,
1: so the kids... Or whoever's reading it, I guess, can relate to it in you know, a more, like, I don't really
0: know how to word it, but... Yeah, there's, a, there's an aspect of re- relating to it, maybe, like, we're modern people, and so it's a modern story, and we can relate to it in, the, in those terms. But think about that idea of the Indian, that stereotypical understanding of the Indian, as a timeless person outside of history, right? What does telling this fable do? Does it keep Native traditions and stories in a mystical past? No, in fact, it like pulls them into the future, it pulls them into the present, right? And so for us, we like, read this fable and we're like, oh, this is really strange, it's weird, because it doesn't align with what we perceive to be the conventions of the fable, but in fact, what it does is it updates it, it modernizes it, and we might say, through this updating or through this modernizing, that what Native people are doing is they're taking those traditional teachings and they're just keeping them relevant, to use your term, right? Keeping them relevant, but in keeping those traditional teachings relevant, they're also suggesting that like Native people, these communities, these teachings, these ideas, they don't exist in the past, right? They're still with us today. So I guess what I would say is like for Sequoia Gasser, for the Cherokee people who are telling these stories, it's not all that strange or like um, anomalous that a car would be in this fable, right? If we're thinking about the point of these stories being that native people can continue to exist into the future, like of course those fables would be updated, right? Native people are not stuck in this traditional past; they exist into the future as well. Does that make sense? What about um, let's think that idea through with reference to the terrapin and wolf story. That's generally speaking like a traditional fable, right? Like, the story is that the wolf is a big, brash, egotistical dude. He thinks he can beat the the terrapin in a race across six hills, and the rabbit figures out that if he gets six terrapins and he puts each one right at the crest of each of these six hills, then the wolf, because he's so self-involved, and because the terrapin is hiding its head in the shell, he won't notice that it's a different terrapin at each hill. Right? That's the story. Right? The wolf is so self-involved, so braggadocious, so egotistical, that he won't even realize that he's racing against six different turtles. Okay? But how is that story introduced? What's really kind of interesting about how this story is told? I'm going to just read a portion off to you. Let me find it. okay I'm just going to read a paragraph in Cherokee lore rabbit is a trickster and he was getting tired of hearing wolf brag all the time one day rabbit came up with an idea on how he could get even with wolf and get him to quit bragging he got with Terrapin and told him what he was planning Terrapin remember at one time had won a race with rabbit Terrapin at one time had won a race with rabbit what is being referenced here? Yeah, that's, that, like, Aesop's fable, that we all know, right? The tortoise and the hare fable. What's the point of the tortoise and the hare fable? Yeah, exactly. Like, it's crazy how, like, these things come out of our reptilian brain. Like, it's almost as if they're kind of so embedded so deeply into our brains. Like, this speaks to the teaching power of fables, by the way, that, like, you can just pull that, right? Like, the fact that this, just, this shit is just in here from, like, when we're two years old, and we can't get rid of it. It's actually terrifying. Right? We just can't, and it just bubbles up in that moment. But the point here, the the thing I'm trying to suggest to you is that embedded in this story of the terrapin and the wolf is another story, right? Embedded in the story of the terrapin and the wolf is the tortoise and the hare story. Isn't that weird? Maybe it's just weird to me, but it's strange, right? Because what it suggests is what? Inside the world of that story, what is there? Another world, another world right? But also just like another story, which means that inside this story, which is supposed to be mystical and timeless, there's actually a history in this story. These are characters that have existed through time, right? Because the tortoise and the hare story has already been told, and in this world it's already happened. And so now we have a new story, where like they're reflecting on the fact that the tortoise and the hare story had already occurred. Weird. What does that show us? One thing it shows us is like an engagement between, let's say, settler Western cultures and fables and native fables, right? Because this native fable is kind of like picking from using as a predecessor or as a source something we would associate with a settler fable, right? Like the tortoise and the hare story becomes part of the story of this native story. That's interesting. So it suggests a kind of like engagement or integration between settler and indigenous stories. But what else does it suggest in line with what we talked about with the possum story? If this story has a history in it, if it's referencing something else, what does that show us about this story? A
1: future.
0: Yeah, it's the same kind of thing, right? What it's suggesting is that like this is a this is a story that actually exists in time, right? This story, because it references the tortoise and the hare story, is a story that isn't kind of like set in this like prehistorical, traditional, mystical past entirely. It's also a story that's set in like our world, right? It's referencing a story we already know, right? So there's actually a history that's embedded in this fable. And if there's a history embedded in this fable, what it suggests is that this fable exists in time, not outside of it that's really different than how we usually think about fables. But if we think about fables as existing in time as opposed to existing outside of it, what it allows us to see, right, the point that I'm trying to make is that if we understand fables to exist inside of time as opposed to outside of time, what it allows us to see is that native cultures also exist inside of time, as opposed to outside of time, right? That these stories, I think Sam mentioned this in a reply on the forum, that these stories continue to evolve and change. Right? They're not static, they're not stuck, they change. Either in really explicit ways, like there's a car and the story describes why a roadkill happens, or in more implicit and more subtle ways, like in the story of the terrapin and the wolf, there is embedded references to the story of the tortoise and the hare. In both of those cases, what happens is these stories are not existing in a mystical past, right? They're existing in like real time, they're existing in real time, modern technologies, stories that we know from our own world, yeah? So maybe we have to revise our definition of the fable to account for how native people use fables, right? It's not just that like, these fables are set in a mystical and timeless past, right? And that they provide this universalizing moral. It actually might be more, more apt or more appropriate to think about fables in a native context as continually changing and updating, right? There was no need for the possum and the rabbit story in the 19th century, because there were no dead animals on the side of the road. I mean, I suppose there were, like, there were wheels. Like, wheels existed, but, like, in the context of, like, driving along a highway or something, there were no dead animals on the side of the road, so you need a new story to account for that. That's a new natural quote-unquote phenomenon, so you need a new story to account for that. So these stories continue to evolve. They continue to change. Just like native cultures continue to evolve and continue to change, which is really an argument against that idea that King provides to us about the stereotypical Indian as being part of the past and not existing into the future. So, the point here, right, is that when we read these fables, what we think we're encountering is something that's always stuck in the past but in fact when we dig into them a little bit and when we understand the work that they're doing they actually provide us with a really thorough sense of native people existing in the present so these are traditional stories but not traditional in that way that like we might expect like they're traditional stories but they're always updated they consistently to use cameron's term term from the forum they evolve right not scientifically but they evolve and so do Native people. So do all of us, by the way, but like, it's a particular burden and hardship, the expectations placed upon Native people insofar as they, it's believed that they're stuck in the past. Yeah? Does that make sense? Damn. Who knew you could get so much out of a little fable? Right? But that's the idea here, is that like, embedded, coming back to what Kieran said all the way at the beginning, is that like, embedded in this kind of, Ostensibly very simplistic language and very simplistic structure are actually really big ideas. You just gotta kind of have the tools to be able to unlock them, and that's like the whole point of taking classes, I suppose. Any questions about that? Oh, it's been fun. Thank you all. Have a good weekend. Go to the zoo, go apple picking. Show yourselves.